I'm always reading various Facebook groups from our dental office managers, hygienists, and others. So many great questions and comments uh, coming from our dental team colleagues who are just trying to do the right thing each and every day for the offices that they serve. So much misinformation out there. We begin our podcast right there. Computers are live, mixers up, levels are good, equalizers good, ready channels one and two. Mike is live in three, two, one, roll it. Welcome listeners to the My Practice My Business podcast, where we teach dentists and their teams how to reclaim forgotten profitability in dentistry with our clinical business of dentistry training. And now, the host of our show, the clinical director at My Practice My Business, Dr. Rob Thorup. If you're not part of a dental networking group on Facebook, you really should join. There are tons of great questions, comments, and advice that happens there. Some of it antiquated, some of it uh, out in left field, but there are many individuals out there who know what they're talking about. Many who have kept up on uh, their business skills as well as clinical abilities in dentistry. Unfortunately, there are many who continue to regurgitate misinformation as if it's dental business doctrine because they heard it from some lecture by someone who professed to be an expert in the topic they comment on. Those wonderful people, the presenters and the receivers, simply don't know what they don't know. I honestly believe that they believe what they are teaching is correct. The problem is that the teacher and the student have not challenged the status quo of what they are learning and what they're listening to. All of us at My Practice, My Business love to challenge the status quo and look for truth. It's those truths that we have uncovered that have been they benefited so many dental practices across this wonderful country of ours. That's what we're about here. Having said that, I want to look at some of the posts that have been made by members of a particular group and give answers <laughs> that just might surprise many of you. I will be changing names to protect the innocent as well as the wise. <laughs> okay, so one office manager, Sarah, talks about a claim being denied as the tooth was considered by the insurance reviewer as being periodontally compromised. She said, quote, There is no mobility and pocket depths were 4 to 5 millimeters. They will not offer a peer-to-peer review as they don't have to in our state. Won't even give me license information of dentists who determined that can't file complaint with state insurance commissioner as it is a federal plan, end of quote. This is the problem we are seeing across the country in that some insurances, uh, some insurances are uh, administering what they call federal plans so they can be exempt from state laws that protect us uh, and cause the dental plans to pay up. One of the responders, John, we'll call him, said, uh, quote, have the patient, the patient, remember that, request an accounting of disclosures, something the insurance company is required to provide under HIPAA law. That will show the name of the person 
who reviewed the claim, and you can search for a dental license by name in the database in that state. Usually, when the insurance company gets that request, they pay the claim. They still have to send the accounting of disclosures, but it lights a fire under their butt. End of quote. John is correct in that whenever you get your patient to engage the insurance company, the outcome oftentimes turns out better than it would have without their help. Remember, it has to be the patient who requests the accounting of disclosures. The insurance company will not give it to your office in most cases. Patients are always willing to do whatever it will take when they understand that if their insurance company doesn't pay on the claim, they're responsible for the balance. Did you all hear that correctly? You don't write off unpaid balances for contract contractual CDT codes that you've contracted to be reimbursed on. I see so many of you do that all the time. Please, people, make it stop. If you continue to write off balances that are actually owed by the patient, they're going to always expect free dentistry from you. Those arbitrary write-offs come out of the doctor's paycheck, my office manager friends. Imagine if those write-offs came out of your paycheck. We always see charges being written off because office managers believe they are supposed to be because of either arbitrary language in the EOBs or perceived rules and regulations taught by someone who usually have never read a contract. Think about that the next time you ask for a raise, office managers. If you want a huge raise, get your docs to come to our training. Just saying. Megan posted one of my favorites, and the responses were humorous. She asked, quote, I have a question for all of you insurance gurus out there. First, here's the situation. We have a number of anterior cases right now, and we are contracted through Delta and several other insurances. However, my doctor doesn't want to go through insurance for these cases because we lose money, and so much goes into making an interior case look great. Example, custom shade from the lab, wax up, multiple office visits, etc. We have an agreement for the patient to sign that states we will not be billing insurance for XYZ procedures, and the cost is the patient's portion. It's executed under the authority of RCW 48.43.085 as a contract outside and apart from the patient's health plan. My question is what scripting would you use to explain this to the patient? And second, how do your offices bill for anterior cases through Delta and get paid for the additional services? Thanks for your input. End of quote. (laughs) What a fantastic question. This office is halfway there. (laughs) And offices like this one are so easy for us to train in the clinical business of dentistry, office manager, and team training because they're already on point. They're already getting it. First, Delta will never pay anyone for any upgraded products and services. However, when you present it properly, they won't prevent you from doing it either. So I'd be careful with the consent form you have, and the patient definitely has to be informed, and that's where our product, My Dental Docs, comes into play so well. Well, 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 Megan, let me simply say your thought processes are correct. But first, let's look at two of your responses. The first one comes from Hillary. Hillary says, quote, 
If the patient has insurance, then everything must be billed to insurance, end of quote. Hillary's correct, well, mostly anyway. Any CDT code you you bill or perform on the patient must be submitted to the insurance company you are contracted with. However, if you create a code, say for a cosmetic upgraded anterior crown, and you call the code D2997, D2998, whatever, and charge, say, $250 for it, you do not have to send that created code to the insurance company. That is a value-added service between the doctor and patient, and they cannot come between the doctor-patient relationship. They know that. The dental insurance company has no control over that. You can find that rule both in the rules and regulations of the insurance uh, companies, such as Delta Dental, and even your state laws in most states have that verbiage. I hope all of you understand what I'm teaching here. If not, call us at MPMB. We can help. We won't give you all of our proprietary secrets, but we will teach you correct principles on these types of subjects. Uh, you'll, you'll get so dang excited you'll want to sign up for training. Just saying. Uh, next is a comment from a different person who has the same uh, first name of Hillary, which was interesting. She says, quote, Sounds like you are in violation of your contract. End of quote. <laughs> well, my good friend Hillary, number two, you are simply incorrect. You are basing your information off of the status quo that has been taught by the unknowing. You are not in violation of charging your patient an additional fee for a cosmetic upgrade or any value-added service you deem as an upgrade or of additional value above and beyond a baseline product or service. Another fun comment comes from uh, Michelle, who states, quote, I have just had an insurance deny a D2799 as inclusive in the final restoration. By the definition in the CDT book, I am using it correctly. Does anyone have any ideas how to make the insurance company understand that this is filed correctly? The EOB indicates patient will be charged zero due to the errant denial. End of quote. Well, Michelle, D2799 is for a provisional crown not to be used in conjunction with a final crown restoration. What I do see is offices oftentimes trying to use codes that help bump up their procedural profitability since we are in the red with so many uh, procedures with dental insurance plans. I get it. I'm on your side. But I would not use this code as a means to increase profitability. I would use uh, the example we just covered with Sarah's post uh, earlier. Having said that, if your office was actually trying to use the D2799 code because you actually needed to do a provisional crown for someone who needed time to pay for a permanent restoration, then you should simply just collect the fee for that procedure on the day of service because that code is often not a covered benefit. However, it does not mean you write it off. (laughs) Just because the EOB indicates the patient will not be charged zero does not mean you zero the procedure out. It's bad verbiage on the part of the insurance company, and, and that can easily be battled. Another thing we teach at MPMB training courses, it's this type of verbiage the insurance companies are using that the ADA, more specifically Dr. Kessler right now, the ADA, are trying to get them to stop using. 
the insurance companies, that is, to stop using that type of verbiage. That type of, of explanation drives wedges between the doctor-patient relationship every time, and it needs to stop. Dental offices can be the first line of defense against this by calling out the insurance companies, meaning request a call with the relations representative and record it. Then play it uh, for your patient or do what we do. Get them and the patient on a three-way call and have them explain to their client, who happens to be your patient, that they, the patient, are responsible uh, for the balance and that the verbiage on the ELB is not truthful or simply misleading. That's always a fun call. The next question comes from Vanessa, who asks, quote, question about failed implants. Patient smoked and has diabetes. Do you refund or give them half off of the implant they already paid for? Or do nothing because it isn't your fault? End of quote. <laughs> I like Jeff's response uh, here when he says, quote, well, you don't give them anything back. Techni technically, uh, they should have signed that away in the consent because failure does happen from time to time, and you spent time and resources on it. Moving forward would be up to the doctor's discretion, though. End of quote. Ah, Jeff, you bring up a really very important point that I don't think you uh, even realize you did. Uh, and that is the use of informed consent for the procedure. Uh, or, or simple, uh, this just drives me insane. Hey, our simple to use cloud-based software, my dental docs, has informed consents in there for almost all dental procedures. And they're powerful in protecting the doctor and the team from any misinform well, misinformation or misunderstandings uh, with the patient. To, just to date, our consent forms in my dental docs have not lost a case yet when a patient thinks they can sue you for anything and everything. Of course, no consent form in this world will protect you from medical malpractice. Keep that in mind. You should be using informed consent for all the procedures you perform. End of story. My good friend, Dr. Dick Angar with Professional Insurance Exchange, uh, which is the predominant malpractice insurance carrier here for dentists in Utah, and they are expanding uh, all around the surrounding states uh, here. He harps on the importance of using informed consent all the time. Uh, prosecuting law firms love it when we don't use it because it's usually a slam dunk case for them to win all the time. People use consent for everything you do. Now, going back to Vanessa's question, never refund a patient for failure of dental work that is biological and out of your control. In some instances, laboratory errors happen, and we can usually make that determination and rectify it with the patient in the form of a discount or doing the work for free, whatever you want to do. But just for fun, I looked at our consent forms on implant surgery in my dental docs, and it's very clear that if you smoke or have other health issues, the longevity of the implant placement is compromised. Done. Having said all that, you, of course you do have to take each case on a case-by-case -case basis because you also want to make sure that you make the patient happy, but you also want to keep it fair. We prorate things. And if you don't understand how uh, prorating works, uh, basically we'll prorate a lot of stuff based on five years. 
So if they spend a thousand dollars and it went two point five years, then they're going to spend five hundred dollars to have it fixed. And now we do we don't do that with every patient, but we do it often. Um, it's just a good way, and then everybody feels better about everything. You feel good because you're not giving it away, and the patient feels good because they're getting a discount. But my goodness, if it's their fault biologically, <laughs> no, especially if they understood that going forward. And that's where it's mega important to make sure the patient reads the consent forms and they, they sign them and they understand them. They don't just sign them off, okay? And the next person is Karen who asks, quote, periodontal maintenance, as we all know, can get confusing, can you have a patient on a six-month recare for D4910, or does it have to be three to four months? End of quote. Kate responds with, quote, it has to be what the insurance says when they can come back for it. Depending on oral hygiene, it's usually three to four months. End of quote. Jess responds to Kate saying, quote, I don't agree with insurance. I don't agree insurance can say when they will pay if they come, but the doctor sets frequency, not the insurance company. Some periodontal patients may need to be seen every other month, others every six months. End of quote. Then Kate responds to Jess saying, true, however, some patients want to come only when insurance covers. End of quote. My simple answer is this. Periodontal disease is underdiagnosed, and when diagnosed, it is oftentimes extremely undertreated. Jess is correct in that the doctor sets the frequency, and we do not treat to the dental insurance limitations ever. If we're not teaching our patients that, and if they don't understand that, that insurance companies don't always have their best interests in heart, at heart, then we are totally missing a perfect opportunity to teach them why dental insurance isn't true insurance. It's just a plan, and they don't care about them. Our non-surgical periodontal disease treatment ranges from 2,600 to 3,400 here in Utah, which is, you know, we're one of the lowest reimbursed states in the nation, depending on if the patient is insured or uninsured. And 99% of the time, our patients after treatment are free of periodontal disease. Now, those numbers that I just threw out there believe this the average office here in this state is collecting between $800 and $1,100. And I said twenty six dollars to $3,400. That's correct. The disease is gone, too. And by being paid that amount, we're able to treat the disease as disease. Think that one through. Our periodontal disease treatment protocols are very aggressive and different than most offices. We treat periodontal disease at it, as it is described. It's a disease. It has contributing factors, but ultimately, it's caused by infection. Do these wonderful bodies of ours really have to carry infection around with them 24-7 for the rest of our lives, as is indicated by so many offices and their protocols, as some have led us to believe? Think that one through. I also uh, read a response that said, their office does not use antibiotic placement as effective scaling and root planning alone will do the job. In addition, they stated that SRP effectiveness uh, only, or that doing SRP only uh, is in the literature as being effective. I have seen that literature. 
And the cases they are doing are cases with minimal periodontal disease. Good grief, people. Just getting the patient to step up their oral health care at home might do the same thing. But can we let common sense prevail for a minute? Think this one through. If you get a cut on your finger, doesn't it heal faster with an antibiotic ointment after you've cleaned the wound? Don't hot tubs use certain wavelengths of light to kill bacteria? Antibiotic placement and laser therapies are also in the literature with fantastic results. Look those up. The reason, in my opinion, people don't use antibiotic placement is because Arrestin's been the only game in town and at 40 bucks a compule and it just squirts in between teeth only. Oh my gosh, who wants to pay for that? No office does because the reimbursement rates are between 35 and 40 bucks. You're upside down. I get it. There are other alternatives to uh, that antibiotic. It's not the only player in town. That's one of the things we teach. And the last one comes from Sam, who states, quote, my friend, who is an office manager, had her nine-month-old grandson pass away. She called the doctor and explained her situation. The doctor asked her if she could still work a half a day on Monday. Is this where dentistry is? Have we forgotten that employees are people with life happening? This has upset me so much. End of quote. Every response was in Grandma Sam's favor, meaning all responses could not believe her doctor would not let her have Monday off to be with her family. One response stated that you don't get uh, this issue when working for corporate dentistry. I'll just have to say uh, that that is sometimes true with corporate dentistry. However, there are other problems when working for corporate dentistry that you don't see with smaller solo practices. So it's not all uh, uh, roses and cupcakes working for corporate dentistry. This is why you cross-train your staff people so that you don't hit the panic button when life throws you a curveball like an office manager with a family emergency needing to have the day off. I'm not here to judge the doctor that did not want to give that office manager some time off. And every office uh, has different protocols and issues that they have to deal with with running their businesses. I get it. But maybe an office manual would have been a great idea prior to this situation happening. If you don't have grandchildren, you simply can't understand the grief of this grandmother. Best to err on the side of love and kindness Again, I don't judge. I'm pretty sure there's only been one perfect person who's walked this earth. But communication is usually key to handling this poor grandmother's loss. And all that we have talked about today literally comes down to communication. Love your team and those you serve uh, for everybody on the team and ask for advice and help when you need it. As always, all of us at MPMB here on our team are here to serve you. You just need to ask. Thank you so much for tuning into the My Practice, My Business podcast. You can find additional podcasts you may have missed that will help you with your dental practice at Apple iTunes Podcasts. And remember to become a subscriber to our podcast. Many of you have asked how to help support the My Practice, My Business podcast. If you have enjoyed the program and information you received today, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. Thanks again for allowing us to be a part of your day.